It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, while the sunlights failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, Certainly this man was innocent. And when all the crowds who had gathered there for this spectacle saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breasts. But all his acquaintances, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a good and righteous man named Joseph, who, though a member of the council, had not agreed to their plan and action. He came from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen cloth, and laid it in a rock-hewn tomb where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed, and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Some things are meant to be comfortable. Uh, I myself am not a slippers guy. Uh, I go barefoot when I'm relaxed. But I'm told that there's hardly anything as relaxing as sliding on a really comfortable pair of slippers. Um, Old shoes, a favourite lounge chair, the drive to a familiar holiday destination. These are comfortable things. They're meant to be comfortable. On the other hand, uh, some things are not meant to be comfortable, but end up that way, and when they do, they can be really quite dangerous. Uh, Some years ago, a friend of mine uh, picked me up in a car that had tyres, but those tyres had no tread. Uh, This car didn't uh, turn corners. It more sort of vaguely slid around them. Uh, It gave a really great swaying motion, actually, which is quite fun on the small corners, but we're in the country. And so there was no real speed limit, and we only nearly spun out completely four times in the 30-minute trip. It was very comfortable. It was comfortably dangerous. Good Friday is absolutely not like slippers, but it can sometimes become like tyres that have lost their tread. Good Friday is both a highlight of the year, and at the same time, I want to suggest to you it's a day which ought to make us profoundly uncomfortable. And so this morning I'm going to speak just for a brief while, but it could be the least happy moments you have in church all year, Uh, particularly if you don't have many moments in church all year. You may even feel a little offended by what is said this morning. But if you do, I hope you can get beyond the offence and see the Jesus who causes any offence. And the way we're going to approach the issue is to ask, why does the cross matter so much to Jesus? Why does the cross matter so much to Jesus? I think it's an important question, um, partly because I suspect that uh, really for most people in our society, Uh, the the crucifixion of Jesus Christ um, actually doesn't matter very much at all. And in fact, if they took the time to 
reflect on it, they might realise that they don't really see how the cross fits in altogether. Uh, Not so much that Jesus never actually died, I think that that's a pretty straightforward given of history, but that his death on the cross is not the really essential thing. Uh, Instead, I suspect most people in our culture uh, see Jesus as a great moral teacher and example. Uh, No matter what the pressure, he would never tamper with a cricket ball or allow someone else on his team to. Now, of course, it's true that Jesus is a great moral teacher. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount, which includes what has come to be known as the Golden Rule, uh, do unto others what you would have them do unto yourself, Uh, that Sermon on the Mount must be the most profound and significant two and a half thousand words ever spoken. In it, Jesus calls from us a level of integrity and selflessness that is utterly inspiring. He puts before us a relational and sexual purity that stands in stark contrast to the use-by date that is stamped on so many relationships today. He teaches us about the corrosive damage that religious hypocrisy and materialistic anxiety will do to your soul and to your community. And of course, Jesus didn't just teach about these things. He was not content to let the course of his life drift from the way of his words. No, Jesus taught every bit as much by the power of his lifestyle as the content of his sayings. He confronted corruption. He accepted outcasts. He attacked self-righteousness. He welcomed the broken. He lived the life of a poor man, often rejected sometimes hounded and at the end stalked until finally his enemies found a way to bring trumped up up political charges to suit their self-interested pseudo-religious agenda. And he took it all with a sense of absolute strength and calm, a trust in God, a clarity of purpose that you might call otherworldly if it wasn't all too real and gritty and earthy. And as I say, this is exactly how many people in our society, perhaps even you here this morning, see Jesus. It it is the dominant category by which people approach and I think still have a degree of respect for Jesus, the great teacher, the ultimate example, whose ultimate sacrifice was Good Friday. And so here's the thing. If... Jesus hadn't died in the way he'd said he would, if it really was the case that Jesus was just this teacher by word and example, then you know what? It would make things worse, not better, far worse, far worse for you and me. And here's the reason. You see, the effect of a teacher like Jesus is first to educate. I don't know if you remember hearing the golden rule the first time, do unto others. And you go, yeah, that that actually, that makes a lot of sense. That's a pretty good grid to run over my life. So the effect of, of a teacher like Jesus is first to educate and then perhaps to inspire. 
But ultimately, it is to accuse. Because you see, the truth is, the standard of living that Jesus sets for us is monumentally beyond what you or I get even close to if we take it with any seriousness at all. Uh, the reason is not so hard to grasp. It's God's standard. This is the life that God himself, our creator and sustainer, would have us live. It's the way life was meant to be lived in the middle of what is often a harsh and brutal world. But the fact is we find it hard enough to live up to even our own standards, which mostly are fairly slipper-like, actually. They're designed to fit us moulded to our particular shape and preferences, fairly comfortable. Our own standards, care for our family, be a good mate to my mates, give a tiny amount to charity, just enough to ease my conscience. Keep most of the laws of the country most of the time, except, of course, those which don't hurt anyone, like speeding or submitting a slightly dodgy tax return. But the fact of the matter is that we have from time to time more or less strained and broken relationships with members of our families. And actually it's the members of our families that can be the ones we hurt most since we know precisely where they're vulnerable. We drift apart from friends, we worry an awful lot about money. We find it incredibly difficult to be actually generous to the point where it makes a difference to us. And on and on, and that's just our own standards. Imagine if you weren't your own teacher, but Jesus really was your teacher, the same Jesus who in all full seriousness in that same Sermon on the Mount said that anger and insults and harshness towards other people make you as liable to hell as murder. Who said that to even look at another person with lust was to have committed adultery in your heart who said to simply let your yes be yes and your no be no, no more and no less. Don't swear great oaths, just be a simple woman or man of your word always. Who said to forgive people from your heart so that it wasn't even there anymore. And not to worry about your food or your house or your clothes. Can you imagine Sydney not worrying about housing? There'd be nothing left in the Sydney Morning Herald. It'd be two pages. But to seek first the glorious reign of God in your life and he'll take care of all those other lesser things. That's the Sermon on the Mount, right? Don't you dare water it down. We live in a morally stunted society, one that so often encourages a terrible moral shallowness which wobbles unsteadily and occasionally when the Australian cricket team is at stake lurches violently between she'll be right, don't worry about it, into utter self-righteous judgmentalism on the other. Hasn't it made you just a little bit sick? Whose dominant category for moral failure is to say, I'm not perfect. And friends, it's so easy to just drift along with that. 
Have you ever really come face to face with the reality of your deep failure to live up even to your own standards, let alone God's? Have you ever actually sat down and looked at the things you've broken and realised that very often they can't be fixed or replaced? They just stay broken. The ways that we hurt and fail people, the opportunities to bless and serve people that we don't take up. It takes an extraordinary amount of moral courage to do something like that. To really look into the dark places of your soul and come up with something of greater substance than simply saying, no one's perfect, we all make mistakes. It's pathetic, isn't it? And it's why it's so crucial that Jesus did die on the cross. That he's more than a moral teacher. Because ultimately all his teaching will do is crush us without the cross. Because the cross both wounds us and heals us. Good Friday wounds us in this way. That horrific cross is the truth about your and my moral status. It's terrifying, really, in the estimation of God, where our failures, what the Bible calls sins, would put us is not in the group of morally respectable people. If, if, if some way there was that sort of division between those people that are nice and morally respectable and then the not so good, and you, you know where you expect to be put, don't you? You think that you'll go over here. And the cross says, no, we belong not in the group of basically okay people. Where your sins would put you, where my sins would put me, is precisely on that cross. That is the true extent of our failure. That is the true state of our soul. That cross is the judgment that you and I deserve. It's so much worse than you could possibly have imagined, isn't it? You thought you were okay, at least somewhere in the middle of the pack. But it turns out that the pack is on the pathway to hell. That's why Luke quotes the criminal. I mean, Luke, Luke's a very intentional, deliberate author. We indeed have been condemned justly for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. Will you hear him speaking for you? For you. So that's the first thing about this Good Friday. It is not comfortable, is it? Will you take some time, spend fully 120 consecutive seconds, sometime today or tomorrow, to look in the mirror of the cross? Uh, Sunday's coming. We'll get there. If you hear what's said today, you'll need to come back for Sunday, actually, in the hope and power of resurrection. But let's not rush there too quickly. 
Let's not take a shallow dive. Let's take a deep dive into Good Friday. To look in the mirror of the cross and see ourselves there. But wounding us is only half of what the cross does and it's the smaller half. You see, it's true that our sins would put us on the cross except for the fact that Jesus got there first. Jesus got there first. That's the healing cross. The great reality of Good Friday is that Jesus goes to where we should go and he goes so that we don't have to go. Barabbas, the guilty one, the terrorist actually, Barabbas, the guilty, is released. Jesus, the innocent, is crucified in his place. The cross of Christ exposes the reality about our sin and the cross of Christ bears the judgment of God on our sin. His death was a death for us. He died for you. He died for me. That's the meaning of perhaps the deepest and saddest and most wonderful words ever uttered, don't you think? Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. It is at that moment that Jesus, breathing his last few breaths, goes to the worst of all places. He goes to the place of unforgiveness. He goes to the place of judgment. So we, for whose sins he is crucified, might go free might be forgiven. The centurion says it. Certainly, this man was innocent. And this innocent man dies so that we guilty men and women might live. And that is love. That is love divine, all loves excelling. And maybe that's even less comfortable than the wounding of the cross, to know that you are loved with such a love, such a fierce, utterly devoted, divine love that will never let you be, that will always pursue you, that will always want you and never turn its back on you, not even if it costs the death of a cross. If the cross shows you that you are worse than you ever dare imagined, it is also the place where you are more loved than you would ever dare hope. And so there are two tasks this Easter. Um, you, you thought it was a holiday? Uh, really, it's just a break from working for an income. Um, so you can pay attention to that much more impart, important part of your life, uh, namely your soul. Just carve out a few moments when it's not all hurly-burly and getting organised. And the two tasks are these. Will you see yourself in the mirror of the cross? 
it's interesting that the symbol itself will be around you uh, constantly today. It's bizarre, isn't it, when you think about it? That this method, this barbaric method of execution has become the, the Christian symbol. Though perhaps we understand a little more why. Hot cross buns, uh, the architecture and artwork of the church, the pictures that will be on the news tonight, jewellery that we wear, it's everywhere. And today of all days, don't inoculate yourself to it. Don't become comfortable with the cross. Open the eyes of your heart. See yourself there. Know that it's your cross. And second, will you feed on Christ? Will you take hold of this one who went to the place where you belonged, went there precisely so you don't have to go there. Will you throw yourself upon him, yield yourself to his love, grasp hold of this gift that he has made? And I understand it may well be that you're not quite sure about these things yet. Starting in a few weeks' time, we have an opportunity to explore uh, what it is at the cross of Christ meant. We, we run a, a course, it's called Wine, Cheese and a Conversation About God. Over a few weeks we look at some of the key issues and the whole question of who Jesus is and what he means. It's very relaxed. It's quite comfortable actually. I'd love you to be a part of it. Uh, grab me after the service if you're interested. Perhaps just fill in a communication card. Uh, pop it in the box on the way out. I'll be in touch. Um, it's too important to let it just kind of come and go and drift away. If you need to find out more, then take up this opportunity. Because in the end, I want to suggest to you that it's only Good Friday that has the power to really change you at the core of your being. Without Good Friday, taking a long, hard look at yourself will lead either to arrogance or self-pity. I don't think there are any other options. I will suppress those responses fairly well. We won't expose ourselves. But either you'll persuade yourself that you really do make the moral grade, in which, come, in which case they'll become a part of you that is very deeply proud and arrogant. Or you'll realise that excuses run pretty thin and you'll slide into self-pity and self-contempt. But either way, it's, it's, it's fairly ugly. It's Good Friday that has real life-changing power in it. Power to carve out your forgiveness and power to change you at the very core of your being. You grab hold of the cross and it won't leave you unchanged. There'll be no self-righteousness. There'll be no pride, not a shred of it left. There'll be no self-pity or fear either. You bask in the love of God. You have just the pure joy of a clean conscience in the sacrifice of Christ. It's not comfortable, actually. But it is absolutely glorious. Let's pray.
Our Lord Jesus Christ, we lift our hearts in praise, uh, in awe, in thanks to you that you made this Good Friday. We pray that because your love is to the end of the age, that you would continue to do your work in each one of us this weekend. Clarifying vision, deepening faith and changing lives. And we ask it for your glory. Amen.